Are you ready to change the way you think about work? Join leaders from the world's biggest organizations, international best-selling authors, trailblazers, and innovators at today's fastest-growing companies. These are the top minds in business, marketing, design, and real estate, here to explore how great work gets done. I'm George Lucas Pfeiffer, and you're listening to Work Inspired. My guest today is a number one Amazon and Wall Street Journal bestselling business writer. He's the author of The Challenger Sale, which has sold nearly a million copies worldwide, as well as The Effortless Experience and The Challenger Customer. He's a professional speaker and a consultant to Fortune 500 companies. He's also the chief product and research officer at Tether. It is such an honor to welcome to the show, Matt Dixon. Matt, thank you so much for being here. So excited to talk to you. Uh, I heard you speak recently and I was floored with the the knowledge and the insights that you provided. Uh, thanks so much for being on the show. Well, thanks George, for having me. This is uh, it's great. I uh, appreciate the kind words and uh, excited for the conversation. Why don't you start by just kind of telling your professional story? You know, you've had a long career at CB, which was Gartner, which is now Gartner. And you've branched off into a number of different professional avenues, including your current role at Tether. So walk us through a little bit about your background and your professional experience. Uh, Yeah, sure. So I actually was in training to be an academic. Uh, I went to, um, I think mainly because I didn't want to get a real job. So I decided to go to grad school um, and uh, pursue a uh, doctorate right after college. So I went to um, uh, Mount St. Mary's uh, College, small college in Northern Maryland, Uh, and then went to University of Pittsburgh for my PhD. I was studying political economy. And um, I think I decided about 51% of the way through the program uh, that I didn't want to be an academic. Uh, And so I kind of shifted my my research to really focus on um, uh, issues uh, pertaining to how how companies interact with governments. Um, And so I got kind of into this I got into the aerospace industry and kind of the deals that big companies like Boeing and Airbus strike with um, uh, national gov- governments. So specifically, specifically in Asia to gain uh, market access. So kind of how they trade technology, if you know, if you will, uh, effectively uh, training their future competitors uh, in exchange for uh, those governments granting them market access to sell you know, uh, high ticket uh, airplanes to their national airlines. And so that was kind of how I got interested in in business. And then when I graduated, because I didn't want to be an academic, yet I had no real job experience. I um, I had my choices were somewhat limited. Uh, and I stumbled upon this company, which was uh, really interesting to me. It was effectively a for-profit think tank. So it was a company called uh, Corporate Executive Board, um, uh, later was um, uh, renamed CEB, just a sort of shorthand. And uh, the company focused on big issues for big companies and sold uh, its research on a subscription basis. And it was sort of a uh, an interesting, I would call it island of misfit toys uh, in terms of researchers. You know, CEB kind of prided itself on hiring folks from a diversity of um, uh, professional and academic uh, and personal backgrounds. And so I found myself surrounded with lots of other people just like me. So refugees from academia, from management consulting, investment banking, law, um, you know, former policy folks. Um, I think when I, I started at the company, I sat in between a uh, concert cellist and somebody who majored in Japanese poetry. And so the only thing we had in common was that, you know, we like thinking about big problems for big companies. Um, and so I spent um, almost 20 years at CEB, I think it was 18 and a half years, 
And um, uh, during that time, had a variety of roles. Um, I the probably the the thing I'm um, most associated with, I guess, is uh, the time I spent was probably the half my tenure at CB. I spent running our sales effectiveness research practice, uh, as well as our customer experience and uh, customer service uh, practice areas. And so that's that's uh, where we, you know, did the research that went into the challenger sale and the effortless experience, and maybe some of that content we'll talk about today. Um, Fast forward to 20, uh, 2018, um, Gartner bought CEB, and that for me was a good opportunity. It been a great run, but it was a good opportunity for me to kind of uh, think about what was next in my career. And I, I got really interested in um, how companies were using technology to really um, uh, improve sales effectiveness, improve the customer experience, improve the way that their service representatives engage with customers. And uh, one of the companies I was intrigued by was a company called Tether, who uh, coincidentally was a, a company CEB had made a venture investment in many years before. Uh, and so I got to know, I had known the founders for a while and uh, they said, hey, we're, we built this really smart um, uh, AI platform that can take unstructured data like recorded sales calls or customer service calls or chat or email interactions and help companies surface insights um, from those interactions, except for, you know, it's it's supervised machine learning, so it doesn't really know what to look for. So a, a guy like you who knows what good looks like in terms of customer service or customer experience could kind of come in, teach our machine what to look for. Um, and uh, and so there was uh, there was my entree into technology. And so I've been at Tether now for about three years, and it's been really fun run, a very, not, not what I would have imagined, uh, my career, the path my, I would have imagined my career going down, but uh, no regrets at all. It's been fascinating being in the, the startup world and, and in this fast moving space of AI and conversational analytics. Very, very cool. Let's talk about the, the challenger sale. Number one, Amazon and Wall Street Journal bestseller. For those of who aren't familiar with the book, maybe give a couple key takeaways or maybe even just describe what is a challenger sale. Yeah, absolutely. So we um, we started this research when I was at CB back in 08. And um, at the time, um, we were, you know, as you can imagine, or you remember, uh, that was a really probably the last time the world fell apart. That was a really tough time to be a professional salesperson. And so as a as a membership based research organization, we took our marching orders from uh, our clients. So, you know, so in this sales effectiveness space, it was chief sales officers from big companies around the world. And we we worked with about a thousand sales organizations um, uh, all over across industry, all B2B sales organizations uh, globally. And they were really grappling with this big um, uh, problem, which was, you know, it, it's the it's the one of the worst economies that any head of sales could remember until the one that we're in right now in uh, COVID, uh, but a um, really tough sales environment. And they were kind of grappling with this mystery, which was most of their sellers were missing their number by a very wide margin, but there were a handful of salespeople in every organization who were continuing to hit their numbers and in fact, in some cases, exceed their numbers and bring in deals that uh, these organizations would have been excited to have in the best of times, but these people are doing it into right into the headwinds or the teeth of this uh, really tough sales environment. And so we launched a global study uh, designed to understand what is it that these successful sellers are doing um, uh, by way of engaging the customer and, and selling that might be exportable to the rest of the sales organization. So um, what we found was um, in the, the original research and what we wrote the book off of was a study of 6,000 salespeople. By the time I left CB, we had data on more than a quarter million uh, B2B salespeople around the world. And what we found was uh, the first takeaway was that um, every salesperson fell into one of five statistically defined selling profiles. So you've got 
hard workers, relationship builders, challengers, um, lone wolves, and problem solvers. And you know, most sales organizations, most sales leaders were really betting the farm on this relationship builder profile. So this is the salesperson who you know, comes in and their, their posture is very much, they're very reactive, they're very responsive to the customer. And their posture when selling is really about needs diagnosis. So how do I understand what's keeping this customer up at night and thereby prescribe a solution for the thing that's keeping them up at night? And what we found was that those people, when you look at high performers, finish actually dead last. So what it basically said was that chief sales officers around the world were placing a huge bet on the horse least likely to win the race. And that the winning profile was this challenger profile. The challenger uh, in the maybe uncharitable words of colleagues might be described as a sharp elbowed, opinionated know-it-all. Um, but in, um, when you break it down into skill sets, the challenger really does three things that are very unique. The first thing is they teach the customer something new. So their, their sales approach is less about trying to find out what's keeping the customer up at night and much more about showing the customer the thing that should be keeping them up at night, uh, which is often a missed opportunity, something the customer, despite all their years of experience, all their due diligence had overlooked, something they missed. Um, the second thing they're really good at is taking that idea, that insight and tailoring it to different stakeholders. And you know, as, as you know, in the world of B2B sales today, every seller, especially any complex sale of significance and something that's risky and expensive and disruptive for the customer, it's got to run the gauntlet of the buying committee. You've got to get all kinds of stakeholders on board. And so the challenger is very good at taking that idea and making it resonate with the economic buyer, but also with you know, finance, with procurement, with legal, with HR, with IT, all the people up and you know, the end users, the folks up and down this, the food chain. So they each see themselves in that insight. And then the last piece was, the challenger had kind of an interesting approach uh, to you know dealing with customer pushback and customer objections. They they uh, we we like to say they teach, they tell her, and they take control. That was the third skill. Taking control is really about holding their ground when the customer pushes back. So that could be around pricing in terms and conditions, or it might be about your insight. It might be that the customer just doesn't buy it and uh, wants to wants to get onto a different topic, and you kind of hold your ground and. And uh, you acknowledge the customer's pushback, but then professionally and empathetically sort of defer or put it on the back burner and, and kind of um, uh, stay the course. And so if you summed it all up, what we found was, you know, challengers really, unlike relationship builders who are all about making tension go away in the customer relationship, challengers were much more about creating tension and doing it purposefully so as to uh, create differentiation and get the customer to see an opportunity that they hadn't considered before. The real objective, again, show the customer what's keeping, what should be keeping them up at night. More to the point, it's about getting the customer to see themselves differently and thereby see the value you can deliver as a vendor uh, differently as well. The story ended up being a one about salespeople, but, but an important component of that was, you know, the challengers uh, to, to do this at scale across a sales organization really requires a company that invests in creating challenger sales messages, insight-based sales collateral that your average salesperson can get good at uh, delivering to the client. Um, it's not fair and, and not reasonable to expect that every, every uh, salesperson would come up with insights on their own. It's usually the job of sales leadership, product leadership, marketing to come up with those insights and then roll them out to the sales force and train them on and coach them on how to deliver them effectively. So a story of individual skill, but also of uh, organizational capability, if you will. What I think is so great about your book is that not only does the concept 
challenge, traditional belief, you know, fitting right into the title. But you've got the, st- the statistics and the research to prove your point. And then you also take it a step further and you explain that research and explain it in a way that makes sense so that the person reading or the person that's listening to it is says, yeah, wow, I, I see that, you know, I can see that being the truth. What I was, what I was interested in, you know, we talk sometimes about diversity and diversity can mean a lot of different things, but as far as putting a team together with diverse skill sets and, uh, and, and backgrounds and perspectives, I was wondering if you were putting together the ideal sales team, knowing what you know about the effectiveness of the challenger type, is that the one type of salesperson that a company should pursue? Or is there any value to having some hard workers, some relationship builders, some problem solvers mixed into them to the group? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. I get that is probably, you know, of the top three questions I hear that that's got to be number one or number two is how do I think about building a team? Right. And um, I think for many organizations, they've got um, they're selling in a team based way so that, you know, uh, today, the 16-legged sales call is not uncommon, or maybe the 16-legged Zoom, I guess, 16-panel yeah. <laughs> Zoom, right? You've got, a, you've got a whole team of experts. You've got subject matter experts. You've got sales engineers. You've got managers and executive sponsors and, and the salesperson and so on and so forth. And I, I think, you know, in a practical way, what I often say to people is, like, look, we didn't study uh, team constructs and what the best team structure is, but it is reasonable to assume that if you had a team full of challengers, they might not sell very much because they'd be too busy challenging one another, right? So you you don't wanna, you need to make forward progress. And um, so practically speaking, what I've often told uh, leaders is when you're, if you're selling in a team-based way, um, it is very important that the person who's running point or facing off with the customer, that that person is either a challenger or somebody who can play the role of the challenger um, uh, as needed. But that's it's okay if they're supported by a cast of folks with other skill sets. And so there's there's going to be a role on the team for somebody who is a hard worker or a relationship builder, right, um, or a problem solver. And so that's um, that's okay to think about uh, team construct in that way. The other thing I would say is, you know, practically speaking, you know, going going down the path of getting rid of your entire sales force and trying to um, hire a an organization full of challengers that's one hundred percent challengers is not very is not very practical or realistic. And the main reason is, well, first of all, nobody's going to do that. But secondly, um, there aren't enough challengers out there in the open market to really hire your way to victory. Uh, we found in a later study, this wasn't in the book, but we found that um, fewer than ten percent of sales talent out on the labor market, the people actually looking for jobs right now, fall into that challenger profile. And so, you know, hiring your way to victory is going to be pretty tough. And one of the important things we always tell people is, look, we didn't study personalities. There are lots of really uh, powerful and very, very interesting, well-researched studies of sales personalities or or personality-based approaches to sales. Um, for us, personality, a personality-based study felt like a ultimately a study about hiring and firing because you can't change personality. And so what we focused on instead were attitudes, skills, behaviors, levels of knowledge, uh, techniques and tactics, things that the average salesperson with support from their organization, uh, training and coaching from their frontline sales manager can actually learn to develop over time. Um, I, I actually presented the other day to another organization and they, um, they during the Q&A, um, they were asking about, you know, hey, what if I'm a high performer, but I don't fit into that challenger profile? Like, what does this mean for me? And, you know, the really 
plain answer is, well, then you should keep selling the way that you've sold um, that's made you successful and made you a high performer. Uh, not, I, nor, uh, neither I nor anybody, I think, on this team, this organization's sales leadership team would advise that you stop doing what's made you successful. But as the title of that very popular book goes, you know, what got you here isn't going to get you there. And the reality is that as customers are buying differently, and one of the things we found um, in our research is, you know, customers today are learning on their own. They're boxing salespeople out. They're engaging the salesperson 60% of the way through the buying journey, even later if the sell, the sale or the purchase is truly disruptive, risky, expensive, and complex. And so that means you've got to up your game. So you may have you know, sold your way to victory in past years by being a hard worker relationship builder. But today the customer can learn about their opportunities on their own. And so the currency of a great relationship now is one founded on business value. And so you've got to start thinking about how do I add that challenge or skill to or tool to the tool, uh, the tool belt or skill to my skill set. It's not about stopping being who you are or the things that got you to be successful in the past. It's more about adding on top of it. Um, and so the message, I think, for, for sales organizations is not, you know, that you should quit or be demoralized or, or change everything about who you are and what you do. It's more about how do I continue to up my game as customers are upping their game? Uh, I need to, as a salesperson, continue to push myself and develop these skills that will keep me um, in front of uh, these uh, these customer trends, not trying to play catch up. I love the idea of the challenger being a skill and not so much a personality, because that means that anyone who wants to can intentionally decide that they will start to become more of a challenger. Do you have a couple pieces of advice as to how someone might start down the path of becoming more of a challenger? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the best pieces of advice. So for, for folks who, uh, you know, oftentimes when I present to sales organizations, um, uh, I will advise folks. You get a lot of questions about you know, from folks about like this feels like a hard journey to go down personally, and uh, my organization is going to have to go develop those insights. So, um, how do I think about getting started, and how do I start to kind of dip my toe in the water, if you will? And, and one of the best pieces of, of advice I ever heard was uh, from a head of sales enablement who was an early adopter of the challenger uh, research. He had. He had started uh, pursuing this approach with the sales team even before the book came out. So when the when it was still just a research paper uh, coming out of CEB, um, and he told us that he encountered in many of his sellers a reluctance or, or really a fear of you know effectively telling the customer they're wrong or telling them they missed an opportunity, and creating that tension. Um, and for many of his sellers, he felt like they were much more comfortable asking the customer, you know, asking the customer, what's keeping you up at night? Let's talk about what you want to talk about, not what I want to talk about. And so it didn't come naturally for them. They wanted to uh, try it. They, they knew the research suggested this would help them be more successful, but they just were hesitant to take that first step. And so what he did, I thought this was very creative. He advised those salespeople to go through their pipeline and to find those opportunities that have gone cold. You know, the customers who stopped calling you back, the ones who never showed up for the Zoom call, the ones who, you know, stopped returning your phone calls and try some of these challenger approaches with them. So try a more provocative message, try something that really grabs the customer by their lapels and shakes them out of their comfort zone. And what he found was that um, it didn't work 100% of the time, but it certainly got a few of those sort of reluctant customers to lean back in and respond and say, whoa, that, that sounds pretty interesting. Nothing you've sent me over the past six months really captured my interest, but that did 
I'd love to hop on a call and learn more. And, and once those reps got, they created kind of a safe zone of practice where they really had nothing to lose with these, you know, kind of stalled deals. Um, and once they had some success there, they felt a bit more comfortable taking it to some of their happy customers. Right. Um, and so, so t- uh, tricks, uh, you know, tactics or tricks or techniques like that, I think can help people get more comfortable with it. I would even say when you, you know, when you're walking in to the customer, another a piece of advice I often give folks is to think about, um, avoid the urge to tell the history lesson of, or give the history lesson of your company or talk all about your organization and how old you are and how many offices you have and all the, the, all the brands you represent or products you make or customers you have or any of that stuff, because it's not about the customer at all. It's about you and it doesn't deliver any value to the customer. Instead, try to lead with uh, what we call in the book, a warmer. So um, uh, lead, take a stab at, even if you've never met with this customer before, what you think is probably keeping that customer up at night, put it on a slide and start the conversation there. It does a couple things. One is it uh, it makes the customer relax because you're not asking them what's keeping you, you know, what's keeping you up at night and putting the work on the customer's plate, but it suggests you've done some homework. You've, you've developed a hypothesis. And even though you've never met with this particular customer before, You've thought creatively, maybe done a bit of research about this company, but you've also thought about who are the other customers I sell to who are like this customer or in similar industries or similar roles. And you've put your best guess on a sheet of paper around what you think. If you were to ask that question, what's keeping you up at night? What do you think the answer would be? And the goal is not to be 100% right. The goal is just to create a different feel, which sends the message to the customer that I value your time. I'm not going to start the sales conversation the way that every other sales rep starts it, which is either with a show up and throw up discussion of the history of your company or with an open-ended question like what's keeping you up at night. Instead, I'm going to, I'm going to start it in a different place. And so that creates a different rapport and creates sales differentiation right from the get-go. Um, and again, the, the, one of the big uh, takeaways from the book is, you know, we've got to fight the urge in sales to lead with what makes us unique and instead try to have sales conversations that lead to what make us unique. So if we know what's really unique about our solution, park that at the end of the sales conversation and spend the rest of the time trying to give the customer a reason to want to pay for the thing that makes you unique. And at that point, you're effectively kind of creating a fire for which you sell the only fire extinguisher that'll put it out. And it's a much more a customer-centric way to have the conversation versus the way most people do it, which is I'm going to tell you all about my fire extinguisher and not, you know, not at all uh, uh, help you understand that you actually have a fire going on in your backyard and you got to put it out. <laughs> I love that. Uh, we talk about work and organizational culture on this show quite a bit, and as you've been you've been speaking, I've I wonder, you know. Your focus is primarily on sales and customer experience and that uh, transactional process or that, uh, you know, that sales process. As far as it relates to an organization in its entirety, do you think that it's possible to create a challenger culture within an organization, something that maybe would be beneficial for innovation or change, positive change at a company? Or is it really more focused on the sales process exclusively? No, it, it, culture and uh, organizational climate play a huge role. In fact, we wrote an article a number of years ago, came out after the book. So none of this research is actually in the Challenger sale. Uh, but we wrote an article in Harvard Business Review called uh, Dismantling the Sales Machine. And for any of, of the listeners out there who are interested in this, this question you're asking about, can I create a challenger culture? Or maybe a slight twist on that is, what is the best kind of culture 
for challengers to thrive, uh, to really do their thing. Um, we wrote a, um, uh, an article about this. And what was interesting is we found that the, the sales, the reason we call it dismantling the sales machine is most sales organizations really run as kind of factory floors. It's, you know, I've got a very rigid sales process. I've got activity metrics. It's all about, you know, it's a numbers game effectively. And I'm trying to get make sure my reps have enough opportunities at stage one, enough opportunities at stage two, three, four, and five, enough pipeline coverage. They're doing the right things. They're checking the right boxes. And it can feel a bit like um, sort of spreadsheet management or um, or even like activity or deal inspection uh, from a management perspective. What we found is that challengers really bristle in that, um, that kind of climate. Uh, they want to work in a climate where they are um, trusted to use their own judgment, that they are treated like knowledge workers, not like factory floor drones. Um, and so we, uh, we found that um, when you create a uh, climate of judgment where um, there are there are rules, broad, broadly speaking, but you allow a lot more latitude to your reps in terms of how they build their pipeline, the kinds of deals they choose to pursue, how they spend their time. Um, they've got to earn that trust, of course. But when you when you can give them that um, uh, that control over their own work, they actually perform way better and they're much more engaged than when you really just try to tighten the screws and tell them exactly what to say, exactly how many calls to make, exactly how many deals to pursue, exactly how to price different opportunities. So it is, it does require, of course, that you hire the right people who have great judgment, right? And can be trusted to, to exhibit that judgment. And I think for a lot of sales organizations and sales leaders, this idea makes them a little bit nervous, right? Because it's, um, uh, this, and I think it does beg the question of, um, have you hired the right people? And um, do you as a leader actually um, uh, trust yourself to hand some of the, the keys to the car or some control over to your reps and trust that they'll actually get the better outcome? So it is a very much, there is very much a challenger culture uh, or cultural component at work here. So I definitely encourage everybody to check that out. A lot more detail around that research and goes in some of the some of the um, the warning signs, how you know you're you're building you're running more of a sales machine versus a judgment climate or judgment culture, um, and uh, and how you as a leader might be able to shift from one to the other. The signals you send, uh, the way you manage your team, the incentives and rewards you put in place, etc. You talked about uh, 2008 and that kind of being the last time that we were in a position like we are in here in 2020, uh, going into 2021, where it's a very difficult sales process, and and how 2008 was kind of the impetus for for doing the book and and looking at uh, the challenger. Would you say that in this world, the COVID-19 situation, is the challenger still the most effective? selling type or have things changed based off of the unique, um, unprecedented situation that we're in now? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think what I've noticed it's, it's been interesting to me, um, because what I found is a, a challenger, there's a carrier kind of a carrier wave of, of challenger, if you will, there's some things going on, um, that have almost nothing to do with the financial crisis, 10, you know, 10 plus years ago, or with the COVID, the current pandemic sales environment, they were just things that were happening anyway. And a couple of the, you know, we wrote the book from the perspective of, you know, how do you sell effectively in a downturn? But, you know, as I mentioned before, the, the story actually was much more about how do you sell to information empowered customers who don't really need you as a salesperson? So we've, you know, we've left this world um, of, 
the salesperson as the talking brochure or the kind of corporate parrot, um, that doesn't deliver any value to customers now because all that information is on your website. You know, the customer can go to your website and that of your competitors, they can download everything about your solutions, um, everything about your uh, your customer, your proof points, your Kate, your success profiles or success stories. Uh, they can download your ROI calculators. They can go on LinkedIn and they can get um, reviews from other customers and you know other online kind of networking places. And so a lot of the stuff that salespeople used to do uh, when sitting down with the customer, the customer can do on their own. And that was what I, what I think happened was in 08 and now again, uh, some of these things just kind of reared their ugly heads, but they were always going on uh, below the waterline. And it wasn't until the tide went out that we saw how ugly it was and what was really going on. One of the other trends we've been tracking, so one is kind of customers learning on their own uh, and boxing the salesperson out and forcing the salesperson to compete on price. Again, something that I would argue was going on long before the financial crisis, but the financial crisis really made it apparent what was happening. Um, one of the other things I'm seeing right now as I talk to sales leaders and salespeople is another trend that I think has been going on for a long time, which is um, consensus buying. And so I mentioned this before, but we wrote a sequel to the Challenger sale called the Challenger Customer, which is all about um, who do challengers sell to? So, you know, um, you asked about team-based sales. One of the other questions I get all the time is, does every customer want to be challenged? And the answer to that is no. Uh, and challengers are really good at finding their twin on the customer side. So who is the person who's going to take my insight like a relay race and I'm handing them the baton and they're going to go and they're going to rally the buying committee and get all of their dysfunctional and disconnected colleagues, get them on board and get them to agree to more than just stick with the status quo, keep your head down, avoid disruption, save money, mitigate risk. Like, especially right now when every company is worried about their very survival, other than, you know, in certain industries that have really spiked in this environment, a lot of companies are right now worried about, you know, being in business next month or next quarter, um, let alone next year. Uh, they're very risk averse. They're not going to do anything to rock the boat. And customers left to their own devices aren't going to agree on much more than, you know, the status quo or the lowest common denominator. And so it really requires that you find that person who can forge consensus. Now, when we wrote the book, The Challenger Customer, we found that on average, there were 5.4 stakeholders in a complex uh, purchase, 5.4 stakeholders on the average buying committee. After we wrote the book, we reran the analysis and we found it was 6.8. So the book was immediately you know, obsolete, <laughs> but, uh, but um, it's, it's, it's a fast moving target. My colleagues who are at Gardner in the sales practice, uh, practice there uh, told me recently that that number is over 12 now. And so, and I think for a lot of companies, they hear that and they say 12. I've got 12 committees of 12 people. Like I wish I had 12 stakeholders and that becomes even more pronounced in environments like this. What it means is that, you know, that hundred thousand dollar contract that used to only require, you know, six to eight people to sign off on now needs 20 people to sign off on because, you know, everyone is there's heightened scrutiny, heightened risk aversion, cash is king and people are, you know, every single deal is being run through the ringer. And so managing that consensus buying dynamic has been important, has become more important, I think right now is really, really acute that salespeople understand how to manage that. Hmm. The challenger sale obviously was very successful. Um, I'm interested 
to talk a few minutes about your, your other two books, the effort, the effortless experience and the challenger customer. I'm guessing that there's some relationship based off of the the title of the third book. Uh, is this a trilogy or or how, how kind of did the challenger sale pave the, pave the way for the next two books that you, you wrote? Yeah. So the, um, the, uh, if I were to knit it together, which by the way, I, I only did after um, we worked on the book. So in, in, in large part, because folks ask the same question you asked, which is how do these things fit together? Um, here's the way I might think about it is um, think about a, a customer relationship. So I'm a vendor and I'm approaching a customer. The first place we engage the customer, step one is the customer status quo, right? The way they do things today. Maybe they do whatever it is we sell, but they do it on their own or they have a homegrown solution, or maybe they use one of our competitors' products, or maybe they don't do anything. And we've got to create that demand, but that's the customer status quo. The next step is to get the customer to agree on a vision. Um, The third, so we got to get one customer to agree that we've got a compelling vision and it's worth engaging further and moving forward. The third step is that customer has got to get every, that one stakeholder has got to get all of their colleagues to agree as well. And then the last step is that um, we've got a signed deal and we want to create an experience that gets that customer to want to renew their contract with us, to buy more from us. You know, when we roll out a premium version of the solution, they want to upgrade. Um, they want to add more seats. If we sell software, they want to roll our product or solution out to another business unit or geography. And they want to, you know, they want to be profiled as a customer. They want to speak at our conference. They want to be on the stage at the sales kickoff, telling us, telling our reps how awesome we are and how we've totally changed the way they do business. But they they go out there and they're a raving fan and they say great things about us. So if you think about that value chain from how do we take step one is how do we take that customer in their status quo and get them to agree on a new way forward? That's the story of the challenger sale, which really, if you get down to it, is the story of having a great first sales interaction. How do we uh, use that challenger approach, lead to what makes us unique, not with what makes us unique, but get that customer to realize they're missing a big opportunity and we are the only company that can solve it for them. That's step one. Step two is how do we get that person to get all their colleagues on board? And, and do we even have the right person to hand the baton to? That's the challenger customer. So it, it it's a similar kind of study. We went out, we profiled different customer types, and we found that customers sell to a specific, uh, sorry, uh, challengers sell to a specific type of customer. Uh, they find a specific kind of stakeholder to hand that baton to, somebody who can forge consensus and get the organization to agree on uh, something bigger than the lowest common denominator. And then the final step is once we get that signed deal, how do we lay the groundwork for renewal, for expansion, for advocacy? That's a story of the effortless experience. And the effortless experience what we found was, you know, when we many of many of your listeners are selling complex products and services, complex solutions to their customers. And we know when we sell complex solutions that something's going to go wrong. And the effortless experience is all about what do we do in those moments when things go wrong? And we've got to help our customer. We got to deliver great customer support, great customer service. And we found is the conventional wisdom that um, you got to go above and beyond. You got to wow the customer. You got to exceed their expectations. That that's actually um, not backed up by the data. And the best approach when things go wrong, when delivering post-sale service, is to actually reduce the level of friction or effort in the service experience. Make service easy. In other words. And that is the key to the customer's heart is not for them to get off the phone with us or get the resolution of their problem for them to say, holy cow, I've been, you know, I've been wowed and delighted, but for them to say, wow, that was a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. And when we do that, we play great defense and we kind of plug the hole in the bottom of our loyalty bucket. So that's kind of how the three pieces 
fit together, one about engaging that customer, getting them to see not just us differently, but see themselves differently. Two, how do I build that consensus and and um, and get that deal across the finish line, challenge your customer? And then three, the effortless experience. How do I create a great post-sale service experience for my customers so that they want to keep buying, buy more, and say great things about me? I think the explanation you gave is probably going <laughs> to help to answer my next question, but I, sure. I, I did want to ask you about personal branding. Uh, it's something that we we encourage at our, our organization as we believe that a network of, of uh, or a team that's got um, a lot of clout or, you know, that's got, that, that pays attention to their personal brands is only going to benefit the organization as a whole. Um, and when I, when I go to your website, dixonspeaks.com or look at the success you've had as a, as a speaker and an author, it seems to me that, that, that must be something that is, is important to you as well, uh, and must benefit the organizations that you represent and work for. So I was wondering, based off of your success, is there a secret sauce that you have to building your personal brand or some advice that you might have for someone who might be a high performer at a, at an organization, but might want to take it to the next level and do something to improve their, you know, kind of their personal professional status? Yeah, sure. It's, it is a great question. Um, I think, uh, I think one of the things that I've tried to do in my career is, is it's not actually um, that different from what we talk about in Challenger, which is, you know, a lot of what makes the Challenger approach work is you, uh, your ability as a business person or a business owner uh, to answer the following question. Why should my customers buy from me instead of from my competitors? And when you ask the question, what I often find is people, their knee-jerk reaction is to go to like fairly generic kind of platitude um, explanation. So um, people will say, well, our customers should, uh, should buy from us instead of our competitors because we're more innovative. We're more socially responsible. We're more employee or customer centric. We're more entrepreneurial. And those things may very well be true, uh, but they're almost impossible to prove. And they only make you sound like everyone else. And so a little known fact, we actually did a, this is not in the book either, but we did um, a quick scan and we found that, did you know, in every single industry out there, um, about 80% of the competitors describe themselves as the leading global solution provider of fill in the blank. <laughs> and by definition, that can't be true, right? But we all use the same words to describe ourselves. And so um, really understanding, uh, getting personal branding right, I think, starts with the question of what makes you unique? Um, and so you've really got to answer this question, like, for instance, um, why should a company hire me instead of any other candidate out there? Why should, a, um, if I'm a salesperson, why should a customer buy from me or, or have a meeting with me rather than every other salesperson out there? If I'm a consultant, why should that uh, customer want to hire me for consulting instead of any other, um, uh, any other consultant out there? And by answering that question, um, you can really crystallize that thing that makes you unique. And it's typically not some platitude. It's some specific skill or specific thing you do that other people don't do. So I think the key uh, really, again, is to isolate that thing that makes you truly unique. And it's, it is the thing that is uh, credible. You know, it's, it's true. You can point to it. You can say you've done it. Uh, you've been trained in it. Um, it's something you've accomplished. 
Um, it's, uh, it is truly unique. It's not something that other people could claim. Um, it's verifiable by others. You know, you could do a reference, you could go look at your past experience and you could see that, yeah, this, this person, they're saying they do this and they've done it. Um, and it is truly distinctive. And so I think for, for me, if I think about uh, me, you know, you mentioned, um, as a speaker, you know, I don't, there, there are a lot of sales speakers out there. I mean, uh, legions of sales speakers out there. Um, very, very talented people. Um, I, uh, I try not to necessarily compete with those folks, but really try to explain what it is that makes my approach unique. So I am not a salesperson. I've never been a salesperson. I've never led a sales team. I've never been ahead of sales. Um, I'm a researcher. And so I think what makes me unique is that I bring uh, data to answer in science to answer a lot of the big questions that sales leaders have, like, what is it that my best sellers do that I can teach everyone to do and therefore we can have more success as a team? Um, and I, I think I do it in a non-academic but fairly entertaining and storytelling kind of way. So I think it is that combination of coming at this from a scientific and database perspective, but wrapping in a great, in a great story um, that makes me unique. Uh, and that's the reason that somebody would hire me instead of any other sales speaker or consultant out there. Um, but it also means that you know, not everyone's going to hire me, right? Because I've kind of, I've really narrowed in on the, my niche and my, my key differentiators, but recognizing that's not going to be what everyone's looking for. But for those people who are looking for it, it makes it very clear that I'm the def, I'm definitely the best option for them versus, versus other folks out there. It's great, great advice. Thank you for that. Uh, final question. Uh, if you could recommend one resource and, you know, I'm sure you come across a lot of books and you know, research papers, maybe other podcasts, networking groups, something that's been valuable to you in your professional career, what would you recommend to others? So I am a, um, I, I've kind of learned a lot of what I do um, from some of the folks who've, you know, really made a, a big splash in the the business called the business research, the speaking, um, the thought leadership space. So uh, folks like uh, Malcolm Gladwell and Dan Pink and Dan Heath. And so I, you know, I've been really inspired by it. I, I, I try to still uh, kind of aspire to the, their level of storytelling and, and how, how tight their messaging is and how thoughtful they are in pulling together data uh, telling a story rooted in science and data, but doing it in a really compelling and sticky way. I, at best, I think I'm kind of an amateur league version of, of what those guys do. But um, but I do um, I, I do look to some of that work, not just as a good example of what I should aspire to, but also providing even a roadmap for for what good looks like. And one of my favorite books is actually um, Made to Stick uh, by the Heath brothers. In fact, Dan Heath wrote the forward uh, to the Effortless Experience, and he and I have become friends. Uh, over the years, he's given me some great professional advice um, along the way. But I, I love that book because it is a book about how do great, what makes great stories and ideas sticky? What is it that gets them to resonate and to, to kind of stick with people so they remember them? And, and the way he unpacks this into, you know, the, the key lessons and the key attributes of a really sticky, resonant idea or message is fascinating. And just the number of stories uh, from the, the urban legends to the political campaign messages, to the TV commercials, to the business ideas, um, the academic or scientific um, uh, theories that have really stuck with people that become memorable is um, an incredible uh, roadmap or guidebook for people like myself who are out there trying to produce content that ultimately changes the way 
salespeople sell and and customer service um, uh, leaders um, you know, deliver a great experience. So it's a great roadmap for folks like me. It's a great roadmap for marketers uh, who are trying to really figure out what is it that is gonna make our brand and our, our message really stick. Um, it's a great roadmap for speakers who are about to get up on stage and, and what they want more than anything else is that people are gonna remember the key messages from their presentation. They're gonna go do something about it. You know, it's a great guidebook for parents and for teachers who wanna get people to really just trying to drive different behaviors, um, uh, upskilling, et cetera. So, I recommend that again. It's uh, made to stick. Uh, one of my favorite books, and it's really been a roadmap for me and my professional career. And uh, the Heath brothers are just fantastic in the way they um, they spin their yarn. So, mm-hmm. well, for anyone listening who hasn't, uh, who's not familiar with your books, I highly recommend them. Uh, whether it's for your sales team or, or or just for anyone looking for a new perspective and 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 for some answers, especially. And especially today, uh, go head on over to dixonspeaks.com and you can kind of follow Matt and, and learn more about his, his, uh, his, his speaking and his, and his writing, uh, Matt, I'm excited to kind of follow your career at Tether. It sounds like you guys are, uh, kind of on the cutting edge of some technologies. And, uh, I think those would be come even more relevant over the next few years. So, um, you know, very excited to see what you, what you have in store for the next, 10 to 20 years. Uh, I can't, can't thank you enough for being on this show. Uh, I know your time is really valuable and, um, and your insights are incredible. Thanks so much for being on work inspired. Thanks George. I appreciate the invite. Uh, it's been great uh, having this conversation with you and, um, love to talk to any of your listeners about, um, about this research, uh, and maybe bring it to their organization or tell you more about tether and, and what we're up to over there. So, um, thanks again for the invite. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Work Inspired is brought to you by BOS, a leader in commercial working environments and a Hayworth best-in-class dealership. Experience our 360 approach and discover the team, tools, and techniques required to navigate the complexity of your next workspace at BOS.com. If you have ideas, feedback, or would like to be featured on our show, please email podcast at BOS.com. Thank you for listening. This has been a Workspace Digital production. If you're interested in launching a podcast at your organization, please email info at workspace.digital for a free consultation.